This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. For most of us, there's the sex life we have, and then there's the sex life we actually want. These things often look quite different, and there can be a lot of different factors that are holding us back from getting what we really want. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about what you need to know in order to make the leap and start taking concrete steps toward the sex life you want. We're going to explore tips for changing the relationship that we have with ourselves, tips for changing the relationships that we have for other people, as well as ways of simply making sex more fun. We're also going to walk through a practical exercise on how to get clarity on where you really want your sex life to go in the future. I am joined today by Rena Martin, a women's intimacy coach, former sex crimes deputy district attorney for the Los Angeles County DA's office, and author of The Sex You Want, a shameless journey to deep intimacy, honest pleasure, and a life you love. This is going to be a fascinating and really important conversation that will give you some really helpful sex tips. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. It's a new year and I'm excited to announce a new edition of my textbook, The Psychology of Human Sexuality. This is the third edition of the book and it's the biggest and best version yet. The Psychology of Human Sexuality is a comprehensive guide to the major theories and perspectives on sexuality and the vast diversity in sexual attitudes and behaviors that exist around the world. It's written from a sex-positive, biopsychosocial perspective, and it offers broad coverage of the latest research on a variety of topics, from sexual orientation, to sexual difficulties and solutions, to sex work and pornography, to attraction and intimate relationships. It's a go-to guide for the science of sex written for college students, but also approachable for anyone who simply wants to expand their sexual knowledge. Check the show notes for links on where to purchase the psychology of human sexuality or find it at major book retailers. Enjoy. Hi, Rena, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. How are you? I'm doing well. It's great to speak with you. So we're going to be talking about your new book today, which is titled The Sex You Want. But before we do that, I wanted to ask a little bit about your professional journey. So as I understand it, you went to law school and you became an attorney for many years, and now you're an intimacy coach for women. That's an interesting career transition. So (laughs) can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So I went to law school, not just because I wanted to be a lawyer, but I wanted to be a prosecutor and I wanted to prosecute sex crimes cases. So I had a very specific niche in mind and I was fortunate enough to land my dream job at the time with the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office and pretty quickly landed my dream position of prosecuting these kinds of cases that impact our most vulnerable populations. Did that for about a decade. And um, for lack of a better term, I, I burned out because sadly, the justice system doesn't always work the way it's supposed to, especially in cases of sexual assault. So I started prosecuting other kinds of cases within the DA's office. And as I was doing that, I was going through my own personal journey outside the courtroom in terms of of sexual shame, in terms of coming to terms with the fact that I'm just not wired for this kind of white picket fence monogamy. And I was married at the time. And so I was having 
a few existential reckonings in terms of my personal life and then my career and realizing I wanted to do something different for myself and I wanted to support women in a different way. So I wanted to help women in the same way my therapist had helped me. And um, I ended up getting a coaching certification to see if I enjoyed working with women one-on-one. Fortunately, it turns out I'm a way better coach than I would have been a therapist. So it all worked out. And um, now instead of seeing sex as this dangerous thing, which I spent 14 years of my career as a prosecutor doing, I now get to see sex as this joyful thing. And I'm able to help survivors and and non-survivors reclaim pleasure in their lives. Thanks for sharing that. It's such a fascinating story and career transition. And I can totally understand how you could get burned out doing that work in the courtroom. I've testified as an expert witness in many sex crime cases, and the details of some of the cases can be very disturbing. And it's also just incredibly stressful to be in court in these high stakes situations and settings. And so I would not want to do that all the time. I do it in small doses and that's enough for me, but it it can be a lot. Yeah. And it wasn't until I, I stopped prosecuting those kinds of cases that I realized I'd essentially been in 10 years worth of vicarious trauma and living in that myself. And I started sleeping better. I started enjoying my life more because I wasn't constantly exposed to the most horrific acts you could possibly imagine. So I know that you understand what I've been through and thank you for doing the work you do in so far as the justice system is concerned. Yeah, it's such important work, but it is such hard and stressful work. And you're absolutely right that oftentimes our professional lives have a way of bleeding over into our personal lives. And so we need to be able to either establish boundaries or sometimes find a new career path that works better for us. Precisely. (laughs) So let's dive into your book. Now, I want to start by asking you about this exercise that you recommend that you repeatedly come back to throughout the book, which is to create a list of 27 things that you want to do or feel in your intimate life that you've never done before. So I have to ask, why the number 27? And what can doing this exercise do for you? How is it helpful? Right. So a little bit about how I came up with this exercise is several years ago, I had taken a a business course pertaining to my coaching and they had tasked us with the assignment of coming up with a list of 101 things that we wanted to do, be, or accomplish in our lives. And when I got to number 10, I kind of ran out of things. I was like, well, I want to travel more. I want to be my own boss, you know, things that were pretty general and generic. And I thought, well, okay, I must be really boring because I only have 10 things I want to do in my entire life. But I forced myself to go through the exercise and get more granular and specific. So things like, I want to see a penguin in the wild, or I want to take a pasta making class in Italy, right? I got more specific and I hit that 101 number a lot quicker than I thought I would. And as a result, it gave me space to expand a bit. So clearly, I don't task my clients and my readers with uh, coming up with 101 things they want to do in their intimate lives because I think that would just be completely overwhelming. 27 is hard enough. The number 27, I've asked this often, Justin, (laughs) and I don't know where that magic number came from. I wanted something that wasn't an even number. I tested out 27 with 
kind of a beta test of initial clients. And that number seemed to be just good enough to push folks to expand as, as I did in my original exercise, but not so high that it caused burnout. So what I encourage people to do is come up with this bucket list, right? And you'll start to see themes emerge. You'll start to see what your sexual preferences are. And if you're single, for example, and you're going on the apps, you now kind of have this this roadmap in essence. Like, okay, these are things I'm into. And I can either start expressing these to people I meet. I can perhaps, okay, swipe left on people who who don't seem like they match what I'm looking for sexually. But not everything on the list is sexual either. I've had folks put on their list, I want to wear a bikini to the beach without feeling self-conscious about it. Or I want to be able to give a friend a genuine hug when they're feeling down. So I see vulnerability. I see body positivity. And no two women, readers, clients are alike. And so this is your unique kind of blueprint in terms of where you want to go. I think it's a really fun exercise. I've talked to some early readers who've gone through it. They've said that with most self-help books, the first bit of homework is like, I'm not doing this and therefore I'm not going to do anything else in the book. And everyone I've talked to has actually sat down and done the list because it's fun. So it, it kind of, it's a stone that kills many birds. But yeah, I'm sorry. I need to come up with a better retroactive answer for why I picked 27 things, but I'm going to be totally honest. I don't know where that number came from. <laughs> well, it seems to have worked. So let's say someone is working on their list of 27 things. And let's say maybe they're where you were with creating that list of 101 things and they're struggling to come up with enough stuff to add to the list. Or maybe they're about halfway through and then they start judging themselves because they think that their answers feel boring or silly. So how do you work past the resistance and make it to 27 if you happen to struggle with that a little bit? So I would start by going back to what you've already written and make it a bit more granular in the same way that I had initially said, I want to travel more. And then when I had to expand my list from 10 to 101, I said, okay, I want to see a penguin in the wild and I want to take a pasta making class in Italy. So say, for example, you've got on your list, I want to be more present during sex. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean I want to have sex with my eyes open? Does that mean I want to have the lights on when I'm having sex? So I think that can be the easiest place to go is turn to what you've already done and start picking it apart a bit. One thing is if you end up reading my book, I give examples from former clients, a whole list of them, not so that you can copy and paste, but sometimes reading what other people have said will jog something in your, in your own desires. And so I give you kind of a few tools to use, but I assure you, there's nothing wrong with you that this exercise is hard. This is precisely why we do it, because most of us haven't ever been given the task of sitting down and, and imagining and giving ourselves permission to think about these things. But I give you some training wheels to help you out if, if you end up feeling stuck. 
Yeah, and I think one of the nice things about your suggestion to go a bit more granular is that when you get very specific, I think it becomes easier to find something that's actionable that you can do. You know, so with your example of I want to be more present during sex, you know, that's kind of abstract. But if you can break that down into smaller, more bite-sized pieces, it becomes more manageable, easier to actually do and implement. So there are a lot of nice things about that approach. Yes. And you're so right, because what I suggest people do is find one thing on their list and do one thing this week to get you closer to that. And if you have something measurable and actionable, and how do you define measurable? I say, if you could take a picture of it, that's measurable. So yes, you could take a picture of what it looks like to have the lights on during sex, right? So maybe you've got that on your list. And this week, instead of just going from pitch black to fully lights on, you maybe leave a little nightlight on or you leave on the light in your walk-in closet and you leave the door slightly ajar. So I'm all about baby steps. I, I use the term baby steps a lot in my book. So find one thing on your list and then take the babyest step you can this week to getting one step closer to achieving it. Love that. Okay, so your book is divided into three sections, with each containing about nine or ten specific lessons. The first section is titled Free Your Mind, and the lessons all have a lot to do with changing the relationship we have with ourselves and with our own sexuality. And part of this is learning to be comfortable and confident in your own skin. So let's start with that. Let's say you're someone who has some body image issues or some appearance anxiety that's getting in the way of you seeking out sex or enjoying sex. This is a common thing that a lot of people struggle with. So what are some ways of starting to change that, some baby steps that we can take there? Sure. So I'm going to start kind of big level here. And what I always tell folks is to really think about how many industries would collapse tomorrow if we started loving our bodies today. There's a reason why you have an antagonistic relationship with your body. So keeping that in mind, right? I also bring up this notion of radical self-love, which is a concept that Sonia Renee Taylor talks about a lot in, in her work. She wrote a book called The Body is Not an Apology. And it's this idea that loving our bodies and, and self-love isn't something that we go out and find. Because as babies, we were obsessed with our bodies. We were trying to put our feet in our mouth, right? We were squeezing our own fat rolls. <laughs> like, So we started off that way. And it's because of all the layers of messaging we get from the media, from our families of origin, from our religions perhaps, that we begin to see our bodies as perhaps our enemies. For some of us, they're our enemies. They're these things that are betraying us. So big picture, I remind folks of those two things. But then baby steps, I have a method that I call the CAMP method, C-A-M-P, that I give folks as a framework to start reestablishing a positive relationship with their bodies. So I'll kind of bang through each one of those letters as quickly as I can. The C in CAMP stands for compassion. In other words, don't say things to yourself that you wouldn't dare say to your daughter to your niece, to your best friend, to a little version of you, right? And I'm using female pronouns here, but if you are not a woman listening to this, think of your, your son, your nephew, uh, a little version of you, your best friend. I like to call those compassionate anchors. So identify your compassionate anchor. Think of 
about, okay, I'm going to imagine that it is my nephew or my daughter or a little version of me when I start talking crap to myself in the mirror, when I'm picking apart my body. I use my nieces, my twin nieces as my kind of joint compassionate anchor. When I start criticizing myself, I think, what would I say to my little girls, to my little nieces, if they criticize their bodies the way I'm doing to myself? So I use that as just a nice hack. It's going to feel a bit silly at first. This is a practice, right? So yeah, start there with the C. A is adoration, which the practice for doing that is getting naked and looking at yourself in the mirror once a day for a week. And I want you to make note of one thing that you see that you like. This is one of the hardest exercises for some folks to do. Because if I said, write down 10 things you don't like, oh, that would be easy. (laughs) Because we are trained to look for the flaws. Because the flaws are things that we spend money to fix. (laughs) So no, we're not trained to accept and love our bodies the way they look now. I don't care if the thing that you make note of is I have nice cuticle beds. It doesn't have to be, I have the sexiest breasts on the face of the earth. It can be something as small as that. But again, this is a practice. This isn't a one and done, but you're slowly chipping away at this notion that there's nothing good to look at and you're giving your brain some counter evidence to that. So that's the A. M is media awareness. Be mindful of what you're consuming. Emily Nagoski, who I know you had on your show recently, who is a goddess, but she cites a study in her book, Come As You Are, which I also discuss in my book. They had done some research out of Fiji and the impact of Western television on the female inhabitants of this island nation who for centuries had seen the robust, in other words, bigger female form as being the standard of beauty. So over there, the bigger women women were the most beautiful women. So for three years, they start introducing 90s Western TV like Melrose Place, Beverly Hills, 90210, et cetera. And within three years, rates of eating disorders amongst teenage girls there doubled. In three years, we were able to dismantle, and when I say we, I mean the Americans, we're able to dismantle what was considered to be beautiful in that culture for centuries. And so if we don't think that media is having an impact on how we view our bodies, we're sorely mistaken. So is the solution to just hold yourself up and uh, you know delete all the apps on your phone and stop watching TV? No. But I say take an inventory, whether it's the accounts you follow on social media, whether it's the reality TV you like to watch or the magazines you read, ask yourself, Does following this, does consuming this make me feel better or worse about my body? And if the answer is worse, just stop doing it for the time being. This doesn't have to be forever. But so if you're listening now, after you're done with this episode, maybe go through who you're following on socials and delete or mute anything that is making you feel bad about yourself. And for the time being, replace it with body positive accounts. And it's beautiful. I can say there are a ton of those now. So throwing that out there is a good starting point and baby step for people. Lastly is the P, which is perspective. Put simply, the people who we tend to find most attractive aren't the people who are perfect tens, and I'm putting that in air quotes, but people who feel comfortable in their bodies. So I invite folks to think back to one of the best lovers you've ever had. 
and ask yourself, did that person have an air quotes, perfect body, or did they just feel comfortable in their own skin? Because oftentimes we are putting unrealistic expectations on ourselves that no one's going to think we're sexy unless we look like X, Y, Z, when in fact, that's not the same measure we use for other people. So that's the camp method. I said I would make it quick, but I don't think there's any way to make it super quick. (laughs) But those are really the tools. That's the framework that I give folks to start using. This is not an overnight thing. This is a process of undoing decades, depending on how old you are, decades worth of conditioning. But if it's a process you can commit to, I promise you, it will make a dent in your relationship to your own body. Yeah, I love that. That's all very practical and actionable. And I think you're totally right to add the caveat that, you know, this takes time because this is something where we have to undo years of learning to not love our bodies. Undoing that is going to be a process. So thanks for sharing that. Now, the second main section of your book is titled Play Well with Others, which is all about changing the way that we relate to other people, right? So it's one thing to start with changing the relationship we have with ourselves, but we also need to change the way that we relate to others. And one of the lessons here is titled, If It's Not a Fuck Yeah, It's a No. Now, one of the stories that you tell in that section that I think is highly relatable is this idea of the relationship escalator. So basically, we meet someone, and once you make it past a couple of dates, you essentially hop on this escalator together and you just keep ascending. You label the relationship, you meet each other's families, you move in together, etc. And sometimes we get all the way to the top and we don't like the view anymore. And we often do this because it's easy, even if it's not one of those relationships that make you say, fuck yeah, you know, this is what I really want. So how do you avoid falling into that trap of just hopping on the escalator and going through the motions only to find that you're in a relationship that isn't actually meeting your needs? Yeah. Well, first thing is don't make major life decisions. And what I mean by that is moving in together, getting engaged, getting matching tattoos, getting a pet together, right? Major life decisions while you're in the honeymoon stage. You're literally high on drugs while you're in the honeymoon stage. In the same way I tell folks, you wouldn't go out and buy a new car if you were drunk, if you were intoxicated on alcohol. So don't write emotional checks when you're intoxicated on love. That's the first thing. And I see it happen so, so often where once those feel-good chemicals wear off, We're sitting across from this person who, if we had given this relationship a bit more time, we might have realized is not the person that we want to commit a significant part of our lives or the rest of our lives to. So slow the fuck down, pardon my French, but (laughs) that's it. And I know how tempting it is and how intoxicating it is. And you're kind of fighting against biology in that way because- Our brains, our bodies, they want us to bond. They want us to bond so that we will reproduce. And so you're having to take a step back and say, I'm investing right now. By me giving this space, I'm actually investing in the longevity of the relationship itself. Because these early stages, they're kind of where the fun and the mystery lie. And so you're ruining that by rushing into things. You're you're missing out on 
one of the most joyous parts of really getting to know someone. So seeing this as a gift and seeing this as an investment, this isn't that you're not into the person. This is actually that you're saying, I want to take this slow to ensure that we're doing this mindfully and that we can build something sustainable here. Yeah. And (laughs) I think everything you said there is great. And I can't help but think about a few people who I personally know who have made pretty big life decisions while they were in the honeymoon phase. And six months to a year later, they ended up regretting a lot of those decisions. So yeah, slow the fuck down is a good motto to have when you're going into relationships to make sure that you don't inadvertently wind up on that escalator and then regret the decision later or find that you're in a relationship that isn't right for you. There's no rush to get to the top. Exactly. And in case it isn't clear, all these lessons in my book are lessons I have personally learned the the hard way. So I'm not (laughs) perfect, right? I'm not immune to this. And so I don't want listeners to think, who is this person coming in here and telling me how to live my life? Oh, no, because I've been there. And I can tell you after many failed attempts, please do not do this. Do not do this. And something else you mentioned in the book about this particular idea is that, you know, rather than taking the escalator, you can take the stairs, you know, you can go a different direction. Relationships don't have to follow this predictable progression. You know, they can go in different ways, take your time, do what's right for you and the other people involved. And you might end up in a situation that works better for everyone in that case. Absolutely. Absolutely. You create your own blueprint here. You don't have to follow anyone else's paint by numbers when it comes to relationships. Yes, relationships are definitely not a paint-by-numbers kind of thing. Neither is sex. Now, the third section of your book is titled Make Sex Fun Again, which is full of lessons for making sure that the sex you're having is truly worth having. So let's talk about some tips for making sex fun again. One of the things that you suggest is scheduling it. But I know a lot of people kind of wince at that idea because it sounds so unsexy to schedule sex. So how can you make planned sex good sex? Yeah. And so I'll start off by saying that I'm a person who positively does not have to schedule sex. I'm not a parent. I live separately from my primary partner. We have kind of normal work schedules. And as somebody who doesn't have to schedule sex but still does, I can tell folks it's some of the hottest sex you can possibly have because of this thing known as anticipation. People don't often say, well, this vacation isn't going to be as great or this restaurant meal isn't going to be as great because I had to make a reservation for it, right? Or the vacation's not going to be good because I actually booked my hotel in advance. We plan things all the time that we are looking forward to. And part of what allows us to be fully in the moment is that we don't have to worry about the planning aspect of it. For women in particular, anticipation is even more important because the overwhelming majority of us don't have spontaneous desire. Most of us have responsive desire, meaning that something has to get us in the mood. So if you know that this is on your calendar, you have time to mentally prepare for that. And how you do that's going to be different woman to woman. Some folks, you know, just throwing on some lingerie. Hey, I'm feeling a bit saucy right now. Maybe it's reading some erotica. Maybe it's texting a bit with your partner ahead of time and saying, okay, I'm really looking forward to what we're going to do later tonight. But remembering that by putting something on your calendar, you're actually, you're not sucking the life out of it. You're giving yourself 
something to look forward to here rather than just hoping that, boom, we're both going to be in the mood at exactly the same time and we're going to want to do things the exact same way as one another. You're giving yourself an opportunity to really curate what you want this experience to look like. Yeah, so it's like we've got a reservation for oral on the calendar for this Saturday night. (laughs) Or, you know, it could be thinking of it in terms of it's a reservation for a sexy meal that you're going to enjoy, whatever that is. If it's fulfilling a certain fantasy, if it's engaging in a particular sex act, if it's getting a full body massage from your partner or something like that, there are all different kinds of ways it can go. And when you think about it in those terms and have that chance for anticipation to build, it can absolutely be a very exciting and intense experience. It can. And, you know, this doesn't have to be as structured as we're putting oral on the shared Google calendar. (laughs) Um, An example I talk about in my book is, and, and I've walked a lot of clients through this, is sending a message to their spouses with, hey, after the kids are in bed tonight, I'm gonna be waiting for you in the bedroom and I want you to just come in and take me. That is actually scheduling it. Or hey, um tomorrow night after we're done with work, do you want to shop online for a new toy together? That is scheduling something. And then, oh, well, maybe Sunday we can try out the new toy together or the night it arrives. So think of scheduling as this kind of broad umbrella. It doesn't have to be as type A as getting it on the Google Calendar, but it can be. We have busy lives. And I'll just kind of add a little tidbit onto this is for people who do have very crowded lives and especially parents who are texting throughout the day about diaper explosions and grocery shopping, come up with another channel of communication to discuss this stuff. Use WhatsApp, have a different email, have a dedicated channel for communication about sex and intimacy so that it's not filtering in with your daily hullabaloo about um, things that are inherently unsexy, like chores and and child rearing. Yeah. And I think that that's a great suggestion to keep things separate. Now, as you were speaking about that, I couldn't help but think about something that I know it's going to sound paradoxical, but you can actually schedule spontaneity when it comes to sex. You know, people want sex to be spontaneous. And, you know, there's this idea, we've talked about it many times on the show before, that spontaneous sex is necessarily better when it just happens organically out of the blue. But if you schedule sex and you incorporate some element of surprise or novelty into it where, you know, we're going to have sex this Sunday afternoon, but be ready because I'm going to bring something special, something different. Maybe it's a new toy that you got to try out or something. You know, you can create that element of mystery, surprise, novelty, where it can have that feel of spontaneous sex because there is that newness that happens in the moment. So you can use planned sex in a lot of different ways, and it can be just as satisfying and exciting as sex that might happen spontaneously. Absolutely. It's like making the reservation at the hot new restaurant, but not going on to Yelp ahead of time and and deciding exactly what you plan on ordering, right? You can have both. And I love that you brought that up, that you don't, it's not a zero sum game. You don't necessarily have to be committed to spontaneity or planning. You can really have a healthy mix of both there. Yeah. And one other thing I would add to this is that it's important to recognize that whenever you're trying new things in your sex life, sometimes things won't work and that's okay, right? We have to recognize that sex can't always be this thing that is perfect, right? Sometimes it's going to be really great, positive 
passionate experiences. Other times it's going to be just okay. Other times it might be bad. You know, this just happens. Like sex is as variable as going out to a restaurant. You know, sometimes you get great service. Sometimes the food is great. But other times you leave feeling bloated and you had bad service and, you know, Sex can go in a lot of different ways, and that's okay. There's just going to be a mix of good and bad. But I think with the tips you share in your book, you can get to a situation of making it so that the good experiences, the positive, really pleasurable experiences occur with much greater frequency than the ones that aren't so great. Yeah, and you're not spending as much money typically on sex as you would at the nice meal out. And with that in mind, when things don't go according to plan, it's easier to just kind of laugh them off too. Yep. (laughs) And every sexual experience can be a learning experience. You're learning what you do want to do more of in the future and what you might want to do less of. So keep that in mind. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Rena. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your new book? Yes, you can head on over to my website, which is my name, renamartine.com, or you can find me on Instagram. Great. I'll be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you again so much for your time. It was a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Justin. Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Lee Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lee Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>